Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. Arden Zwelling and Ben Nicholson Smith here with our producer, Christian Ryan. Please, as always, reach out to us at the letters at sportsnet.ca on Twitter, on Instagram, etc. Ben, rather fortuitous that we had decided to record here at 9 a.m. on Wednesday morning because late Tuesday night, you had the news that Bo Bichette uh, has come to terms with the Toronto Blue Jays on a three-year extension that will buy out all three of his arbitration years prior to free agency. This comes the week of a hearing that was scheduled between the Blue Jays and Bichette's side to decide his 2023 salary. Uh, We have the length. We don't have the exact terms, although we could certainly work to reverse engineer them. What are your thoughts and what were your thoughts as you kind of heard that, that this was developing on Tuesday night? I do think it makes just a lot of sense for Bichette and for the Jays because it's only his arbitration years. So these are years where he was going to be a Blue Jay no matter what, and there was no chance that they were going to non-tender him. So you know he's going to be in uniform for the Jays for that period of time, and it doesn't cost Bichette any of his free agent years. He still gets to hit free agency at a very young age, still has all of that upside to explore in a few years' time, but In the meantime, there's a little bit of certainty for Bichette and for the Jays. For Bichette, I think it really limits his downside. There's no chance that, you know, even if he does get injured, he's still going to get paid handsomely for that three-year period. Probably something in the range of 30 to 35 million, depending on how those numbers line up. We don't have the terms just yet as we record this, but he's going to be paid handsomely for those three years, paid fairly, paid within the arbitration structure. And for the Jays, there's some cost certainty here. There's also a little bit of upside here because if Bobichet continues playing 160 games a year and putting up five war seasons, then he would earn more than this going year to year. So the Jays are able to preserve the upside that he performs at an all-star level and gets paid slightly less than that. So to me, it makes a ton of sense. And yet, of course, doesn't answer the big picture question of what happens beyond three years from now. It's the funny thing, right, that you're not going to be surprised by these numbers when they come out. Nobody's going to go, whoa, like, how do you get that? Right. Like both sides understand what's at play here. And this is such a calculated process, such a cold business process, arbitration and and a player's first six years um, of major league service that. Yeah, like you said, you you can put a pretty reasonable guess on what the number is going to be. And I would bet you that the first year is going to probably just about split difference between where the Blue Jays filed $5 million and where Bichette filed $7.5 million. And then from there, it's going to be like a 1.8 times increase, right, on, on each of the next two years. Uh, that's why the, like deals like this packs like this make sense like we saw matt chapman come to one very quickly with the blue jays upon being acquired last year i mean you see in the tampa bay rays handing them out like like crazy and uh, you know some of those are buying out free agent years as well but like for the ones that don't buy out free agent years like it's kind of straightforward once you have an idea of the range that a player's first arbitration number is likely to fall into Exactly. And I mean, with the Chapman deal, no one's complaining about that, you know, a year later, like that's just good business. You avoid the arbitration room, you avoid the hearing setting. Of course, you know, these sides were preparing for that possibility. And we I mean, you spoke to Bo about this last year, Arden, and maybe this is a good time to actually 
you know, dive back or reflect back on some of those comments. But, you know, my impression from reading the comments, I wasn't there with you guys when you were talking, but reading those comments, it sounded like a year ago, he was not particularly thrilled <laughs> with the way that the Blue Jays were handling their pre-arbitration raises. Yeah, he does not agree with the system that the Blue Jays use. And I feel like we got into this pretty deep last year. And I don't want to rehash all of it because I don't want to be here for two hours talking about this stuff. But you can go back and read the piece that I did last year when I talked to Bo about that. And he said, yeah, I don't agree with the Blue Jays pre-arbitration raise system. That's why I turned down my my raise and actually took less money in my final year prior to, to arbitration. Alec Manoa did the same. Bo Bichette said to me, I'm an outlier and I don't feel that their system properly rewards outliers. <laughs> Maybe it's okay for the uh, reliever who is going to throw 50 innings of a three, five ERA. Like maybe it's okay for the utility infielder who's going to be like worth a, a win to a win and a half. Maybe it's not so okay for the shortstop who's leading the league in hits and putting up four and five win seasons. Like that doesn't properly reward me and compensate me. But that also gets to arbitration as well. And and so much of the discussion and discourse around this has been, well, how does Bo feel about it? What's his relationship with the front office? Like, is he displeased? I promise you that even with this extension, Bo Bichette still feels underpaid. And I promise you that he still feels displeased with the entire process and the way that it is set up structurally in the MLB economy because it doesn't reward players for their market value. If Bobachet was a free agent, I mean, imagine the contract that he would be signing. He's not going to come out of this feeling like, yep, I got my worth and I got my value. Because Bobachet knows his worth and he knows his value in this game. He is still going to feel underpaid after this it's kind of just part of the the cold sort of unemotional business side of this is that he was always going to come out underpaid from it and that's something that he's always had to accept regardless of the outcome here and there's no doubt i mean he is underpaid relative to his value on the field you know he's making let's say it's six and a quarter in 2023 we haven't seen the structure but for argument's sake if that's the number he's making like that's like middle reliever money you know that's like <laughs> you know the last guy on your bench is making that money so you know Boba Shad starting shortstop and, and look I mean this is obviously collectively bargained by the players and by the owners Boba Shad was part of those bargaining discussions when they took place a year ago this time and so he had the chance along with you know hundreds of other players to potentially impact those talks arbitration has been here for almost 50 years it's really tough to, to shift that system overnight, even if Bobachet wanted to. So to some extent, he's stuck within this system. To some extent, it's a system that the players have accepted and chosen to continue engaging with. So regardless, I mean, the question of how he feels is a really interesting one. I think it was always dangerous to assume that because they filed far apart, that meant that there was some big you know, rift between the Blue Jays and Bo. I think it's probably equally dangerous to assume that just because they've agreed on a three-year term that makes sense for both sides, that that means everything's perfect. And, you know, now they're now he's destined to be a Toronto Blue Jay for life. And, you know, let's prepare to put him on the level of excellence in Toronto. They're doing a deal that makes sense. It's good business for everyone involved. And, and again, let's wait till we hear from Bo a little bit more on this. Yeah, it doesn't change anything in terms of Bo's likelihood to be a Toronto Blue Jay beyond the next three years in terms of how he feels about Jay's management in terms of liking to play in Toronto, what he wants his career to look like down the line. Like, it just doesn't change anything. Like you said, it's just 
it's just business. Um, just because a player agrees to a salary uh, in an arbitration year um, ahead of like without going to a trial, without going to a hearing, doesn't mean that they're happy with that salary. Like, doesn't mean that they're happy with that outcome. Like, do you think like what Adam Simber, right? The dude's 32. He's led MLB in appearances over the last two seasons uh, with like a two and a half ERA. Is he stoked to be making $3 million next year through arbitration? <laughs> uh, to be making what less than a third of what you say Kikuchi does? To be making less than what the Blue Jays just gave to a 16-year-old in the Dominican Republic? Tim Meza just turned 31. He was drafted a decade ago and he still has two more years of arbitration after this one when he can go to the open market and actually realize his value and hear all of these teams say well you're a 33 year old reliever and yeah the market just doesn't reward guys like you that that's what the system is right it's team friendly it doesn't reward relievers or more specialized position players it suppresses wages I think plenty of players come out of it feeling sour, whether they agree to something like well ahead of a possible hearing or whether they go towards something like the 11th hour like Bichette did. Yeah, it's quite a system. And this is why free agency is so big. That's why it's such a celebrated right to get to free agency in Major League Baseball is if you're able to get those six years of service time then you really have um, done something that most players don't do. And six years of service in the major leagues against that kind of competition, it's not easy to get to that point. But, you know, Bichette will, um, you know, in three years' time, some really interesting questions at that point. And I think, too, like one of the questions, and I think probably the people who listen to At The Letters would know the answer to this, but it's worth stating anyways. But, you know, you see the three years, and maybe there's a question of, why wouldn't it be more years? You know, why wouldn't the Jays make it four or five or six years? And I mean, of course, the Jays would probably love to sign Bo Bichette for four or five or six years. But if you're Bo, you're not going to give away the chance to get to free agency as soon as possible, unless you're getting compensated in a really significant way, not just by tacking on a couple extra years. So a four or five, six year deal, that was presumably without knowing the exact details of the conversation, but I'm familiar with some of them. To me, from what I've heard, the discussions here were around one, two and three year deals. And those discussions picked up this week. And I think there was clearly motivation on both sides to get something fair done, but you were never going to see a five year deal for Boba Shat. That just, it was either going to be three or like 13. Well, especially when he's positioned to hit free agency at what twenty eight years old, uh, he's already got a couple of like four and five win seasons on his resume. Like, who knows what else he could do over the the next three years? He's a remarkable player. Like he's absurdly gifted and talented at baseball. He's such a good hitter, and he plays a premium position. Frazier liner to short and a leaping catch by Bichette. What a play! Oh, Bichette. You can see why Adam Frazier gives Kevin Gosman fits. I mean, a two-strike swing. He puts a nice barrel on the ball. But Bo Bichette, get up. I mean, this is a good, what's the vertical on that? Five, six feet, him getting up to be Of course, you're going to want to realize that value on the open market. I mean, and this is, this is Bo Bichette. Like, remember what you love about watching him play the game and what he brings to competition that like really resonates with people. He's incredibly driven. He's incredibly motivated. He's so competitive and so self-assured, so hardworking. All that stuff applies off the field as well. 
Like he has a very clear understanding of this sport, of its economics, of how it works, and of the rare position that he has put himself in within it to realize that value. Like how many how many players get to sign nine figure deals like Bobichet could if he stays healthy and productive over the next three years like you were saying how rare it is for players just to accrue six years of major league service to become free agents there's a whole nother tier of players who who accrue that service then enter the market at a point where they're still somewhat on the upswing of their career they can still make a case that you should give me six seven eight nine years at 20 25 million dollars a season like that's incredibly rare but for Bo Bichette This is the family business. This is something that he's been thinking about since he was a teenager, I promise you. Since he was homeschooled as a kid, like didn't go to high school, like spent hours of his day training with his dad at a a facility in Florida to get as good at baseball as possible, to put in his 10,000 hours. I mean, everything that he's done over his not very long life has been with the purpose of getting as good at baseball as possible and then performing as well as possible at the highest level and then positioning himself to earn as much money as possible from this sport. So don't be surprised to see him like in these instances, not giving away free agent years last year with like not taking the, the, uh, the salary the Blue Jays were giving him and speaking out about the system that they use to determine that salary. Like don't be surprised to see him fighting for what he's worth and utilizing every means he has by which to increase his earning potential in his career. This is who he is, and I'm actually glad he is that way because I think the game needs individuals like this who are wired this way in these positions. For sure, and there are a lot of those guys you know, who think along those lines, whether it's you know Max Scherzer with the intensity that he brings to all aspects of, of his game, and, and you know, Bo Bichette on this multi-year term will be making less than Scherzer makes in a year, um, but still, it's probably, let's say it's in the neighborhood of whatever it is, 30, 30 plus million dollars. That's a lot of money. So that's still a substantial guarantee, even for someone who grew up the way that Bobachette did, the son of a major leaker. That's a lot. And, you know, uh, there's probably something to be said from a goodwill standpoint here for the team and the player. And it's not to say that it changes anything that we've just said, because ultimately it's a business. Bobachette is going to want to get paid fairly at every turn. But, it doesn't hurt to establish with the Blue Jays that, hey, they can see eye to eye on some value. They can reach a, a deal that makes sense for everyone. And I don't think this is going to stop Bobachet, you know, from being incredibly motivated to go out there and produce. I mean, this is this is someone who's uh, who takes it really seriously to take the field and to and to play really well. And I don't think there's really any question that that's going to continue to be the case the next three years. Yeah, don't forget that Bo Bichette called his shot in the draft, even, right, in 2016 when he was up for selection, turned down, like told teams that were going to take him earlier than the Blue Jays did, don't take me. I'm not signing with you. I don't want to go to you. Like really actually charted his own course to the Blue Jays because he felt they weren't going to mess with my swing. They're going to give me the clearest path to get to the majors like as quickly as possible. I'll still get, you know, a $1 million bonus, which is going to be pretty good for being a second round selection where, where Bo was, was chosen. Like he has been pulling these levers ever since he came into the game. And like, good, when you were uncommonly talented, when you were a special athlete like Bo Bichette is, you should 
pull these levers because you're in a very rare position to do so in an economic system that for the first six years of your career is slanted rather heavily uh or is you know a deck that is stacked rather heavily against you um yeah you mentioned the scherzer deal yeah max scherzer makes a lot of money bo bichette's gonna make a lot of money over the next three years i can tell you right now steve cohen has bo bichette arbitration like bo bichette extension money hanging on the wall in his office he yeah. decorates his office with a frame that contains a Bobichet <laughs> extension, yeah. something that is worth a Bobichet extension. So don't forget that side of it as well. When it comes to the goodwill, like it's interesting. I wonder how much goodwill there is when, like, once the there was a an area where the first year of Arb was going to end up. Everyone sort of knew where this was going in terms of what Bobichet could make. If you went year to year, what a three-year extension would look like. It would get really difficult to try to figure out a four, five, six-year extension, as you said. But like the next three years, like once Bo Bichette had put up the numbers that he did entering arbitration, a lot of it was pretty formulaic and pretty cold. So like I wonder how much goodwill really comes out of this. The one bit of goodwill that I can kind of find when I really like analyze it and tease it is that the Blue Jays could have just gone to the hearing, which you know you reported was going to be on Thursday, because I think the Blue Jays were really well positioned going into that hearing. And I think that there's if you know you were betting on who was going to win that hearing, I think the Blue Jays are the side that I would have bet on going into that. And if the Blue Jays win that hearing, well now Bo Bichette's making five million dollars in twenty twenty three no matter what. So now that depresses the value of the next two years in ARB as well. Remember, ARB won. That is the most important year for yep. a, a player going through arbitration because if you start low, you will finish low in arbitration. If you start high, you open yourself up to the possibility of finishing high if you remain healthy and productive Like because that first year is the platform. That's what all future salaries are based off of. You can only go up so much. Like That's why Bo Bichette was fighting for $7.5 million or would have been fighting for it on Thursday because you want as high of a number as possible and ARB1 is so important for players. But the Blue Jays could have gone to that hearing and come out of it with a $5 million salary for Bo Bichette in 2023. And then this agreement that they signed is ripped up. It reframes everything else about the salaries that you would be negotiating in 24 and 25. So I could see a little bit of goodwill there in giving Bichette, whatever it's going to be in like with negotiating off of whatever the the, the midpoint is going to be in 23 and then moving up from there because the Blue Jays could have said, hey, we'll go to a hearing. We'll get our five million dollars set in stone for 23. And then now all of a sudden that's just going to depress what we have to pay in the two years after that, even if we agree to a two year extension. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we'll never know what would have happened in that hearing. And I would love to see actually those those presentations, those PDFs that I'm sure have been assembled already and, and prepared by both Bichette's representation and by the Blue Jays. Of course, those will be torn up and, and deleted and uh, you know we'll never know what was on them. A few arbitrators in Florida will go back to dealing with electricians and flight attendants and teachers and they'll miss their chance at you know best day of the year, Bo <laughs> Bichette arbitration case. Um, but yeah, I, I do think you know based on some of the conversations that I was having with people who are very experienced in arbitration but who weren't actively working on this case some of them were saying you know what it really could go either way and Bichette clearly took a shot on upside I mean the safe number for him probably would have been closer to you know six eight maybe and try to lower that midpoint Um, so he took a shot at upside he had a chance at landing that by tying himself to someone like Vlad Guerrero Jr. who would have been a big comp for him Pete Alonso also would have been an interesting one but those aren't perfect comps 
nor are the shortstops from a few years ago um, that the Jays would have brought in. But the Jays, according to some of the people I spoke to, were in a very good position. So again, we'll never really know. Now we don't have to know. And from a goodwill perspective, they didn't necessarily build a ton of goodwill, but they avoided the worst case scenario (laughs) when it came to Bo and the Jays. So maybe there's something to be said for that. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, it's, it would have been so interesting to see that arbitration case play out. Not that we'd get all the details behind it, but just to see where they landed. Because as you said, the Blue Jays would be comparing Bo to, you mentioned it on the last podcast, like a Willie Adamas or Javi Baez, Trevor Story. Yep. Like they'd be Correa. comparing yeah, to him to shortstops. Bo's case would be comparing himself to superstars to four to five win players who aren't necessarily shortstops who play other positions and it would have just been interesting to see like how that would play out how arbitrators would rule on that on the same day by the way that they're trying to sort out Kyle Tucker with the exact same how long until Kyle until Kyle Tucker signs the same extension with the Houston Astros Bo Bichette just signed with the Blue Jays uh those teams you know those sides filed at the exact same figures as Bichette and the Blue Jays did but like it just would have been interesting to see how that argument played out based on how imperfect the comps would have been on Bichette's side but an intriguing case to be made that like again I'm an outlier I'm different. I am not like these other shortstops. I'm not like these other guys. Think about me as a baseball player and everything that I'm doing. Don't just think about me as a shortstop. And in arbitration, it's all about recency too. So even like Javi Baez, Trevor Story, Carlos Correa, those comps start to feel old really fast. Like you can't, it's, it would honestly be like pretty much inadmissible to go back like 10 years. So if you're going back three, you're like it's starting to get kind of old, four or five years, like you're starting to get into, into territory that you can't really use. So the freshest, this is why the Tucker one is so big, is the freshest comps are the ones that are like, this is what players are valued at right now. And so, you know, Bichette, he's out of that system, doesn't have to worry about it. And, um, you know, I, I would love to see the documents. I think probably safe chance we never will. But, um, you know, as as a baseball nerd, definitely those um, those uh, PDFs would be interesting to, to browse through. Thinking about it from a global perspective and what this could mean for Bobby Witt Jr. in a couple of years and O'Neill Cruz and Jeremy Pena. Is this a good thing for those guys? Um, is this a bad thing for those guys? Like, does it raise the 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 tide at all for them? Maybe it's another case where it's like a good thing of avoiding the potential outcome where they avoid Bo Bichette getting a five million dollar salary and that being their comp. Uh, now, if the the comp is where wherever Bichette lands at, or even if it's those more historical ones, it'll really be well in the rear view. But by by the time those guys are going through arbitration, like I kind of wonder how. Those players, their representatives, and their employers, their teams that don't really... You look at who O'Neill Cruz and Bobby Witt Jr. and uh, Gunnar Henderson play for, not organizations that like to spend a lot of money. Uh, I'm kind of wondering how all those stakeholders are thinking about this. Yeah, the small market shortstops. That's true. I, um, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think it would impact if they were to sign uh, extension for their ARB years um, because then there's a template in place. But you can't really use extensions you can't really use multi-year deals in the context of a single year arb hearing so for those guys if they do go year to year they would have to find other comps and you know is that uh yeah comparing themselves to each other or someone who's now maybe two three years in 
you know, to find that right, I'm trying to think of like maybe a Wander Franco by then, you know, someone who's like a couple years ahead, then you go off of that. But the Bichette one, because it will cover multiple years, can't, can only really be used as a comp for the multi-year deals. Well, Wander like signed the extension, but he definitely would have been right. a guy in uh, in that conversation. Like it, it also it zooms out more broadly to the players' association, right, and to the league. And I know like you were doing some work on just what goes into these arbitration hearings, the amount of prep, and who's involved. I mean, the players' association is involved here, and the league is involved here as well on the team side. Oh, big time. Yeah, like they have a lot at stake here. Um, They have eyes on all this stuff as it's unfolding. Um, And yeah, it's kind of like a weird week in the baseball calendar where you have these baseball heavyweights arriving at a hotel in Florida and all kind of getting together and and preparing for these hearings. I've never been to an arbitration hearing (laughs) for obvious reasons. Media are not allowed. It's not a thing that's done. Um, But uh yeah, I would be curious to go. It would be very, very interesting to be a fly on the wall on those things because, um, you know, there are stakes for all involved. And it's just, uh, you know, it's one of those weird parts of baseball that, like I said, it's been around since I want to say 1973. Like it's it's part of baseball now for half a century. And, you know, I'll, you talk to people. I'm sure you have these conversations too, Arden. But like I talk to people in the baseball industry who are like, hate I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But other people are like, it is what it is. And some people came up in the game this way. And so, you know, they they have maybe a fondness for it. I actually kind of like it. But, you know, I understand, I'm, you know, maybe in a minority there. If there was some sort of a war calculation that both sides could agree upon that would reward players in their sort of four to six years, that would be preferable, I think. I just don't know how you get both sides to agree on, yes, this is how we are going to adjudicate these salaries based on statistics. Oh, yeah. It's super complicated. And we saw them try to introduce war in the CBA negotiations this time last year and got really complicated really quickly. Um, so there's something something that works as bizarre as it is. There's something that works about these like, you know, retired judges sitting there in an arbitration room being like, yes, we side with Boba Shet. It's really imperfect. It's really weird, but it serves a purpose. It's not just players that hate it. It's team people that hate it. It's front oh, yeah. office executives like agents hate it, it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody likes it, but they're, they're they don't have a better alternative, right? It's like is you know is democracy like the best system for organizing society? Maybe not, but do we have a better one? Right. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of like arbitration is like is I don't know is this like is this the best system? I don't know. Do you have a better one? What's the better yeah. one? That's what we don't have. No, exactly. I mean. Um, for democracy there's that's a that's a whole podcast series perhaps but um <laughs> yeah i'm not sure i can solve that one for you let, let me i i butchered the quote but people will know what i'm trying to get at there uh two very quick thoughts that i'll throw at you one i continue to be blown away by the blue jays luxury tax bill this year this bichette deal is going to increase it because remember like a player's aav counts towards your luxury tax not there so the aav of this deal is going to be higher than the five or the seven and a half that bichette would have made this year so the blue jays are going to pay further into the tax because of this uh extension with boba Bichette. and yes they should the blue jays should be spending money and they are spending money like i said every team was cut a 65 million dollar check 
over the off season from like streaming rights, national TV, $30 million for the BAM tech sale. You can now sell patches on your jerseys and, and realize revenue. There's another stream. Uh, teams make a lot of money, but not every team spends it. And not every team is out here splashing around money. The Blue Jays are in a very meaningful way. They have just absolutely blown past the first luxury tax threshold. And it's I'm still recalibrating to the Blue Jays being a team that does that. And for a lot of the reasons that we mentioned last week, it's hard to imagine them ducking back under the cap, that threshold next year, unless this roster is going to look very different. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's true. The spending continues. This is the kind of deal that, they should be making, uh, you know, I said on Fan 590 last night, I think this is the kind of deal the Cincinnati Reds should make or the Pittsburgh Pirates should make. Like, it's a clear win-win deal. It's good for the team. It's good for the player. And definitely a team in the in the Jays position should be making this kind of deal. And, uh, you know, it's not every time that you see a deal like this, it's like a clear win-win. So it, it's nice to nice to see those, those deals that work for everyone involved. My second point, that'll be my final one on this. Man, I'm just going to enjoy Bo Bichette playing baseball. For the next three years, I enjoy not having to talk about extension with him, about arbitration with him, about relationship with the team, with him, all that stuff. I suppose next offseason it's going to come back up about, oh, you got to trade him while his value is high and he's going to go to free agency. You got to get something from him. Like, I suppose that's always going to be there. But man, I just fatigue of how we talk about the sport sometimes, how much focus and attention is on what are you making? What's your contract? What's your relationship with Ned? What's your value? Let's put a number on you. Like what's what are the possible transactions here? Who's being signed? Who's being traded? All this stuff. Yes, all that is interesting. All that is a very important part of the game. And I think if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I am very interested in that. But I am so much more interested in watching Bo Bichette in the batter's box against Garrett Cole fouling off two strike sliders. I am so much more interested in Bobachet ambushing Hunter Green fastballs first pitch or sliders first pitch and him shooting ropes off the right center field wall. He's such an exceptionally talented player. He has such a unique and interesting approach at the plate. He plays the game with such a flair and such a self-assuredness that is uh, just in incredible to imagine considering his age and how we all felt about ourselves at that age and maybe still feel about ourselves at this age just the the way that this guy carries himself in competition and the things he does on the baseball field are so special you can look at the numbers like leading the league and hits back to back being a 45 win shortstop how many people who cover teams how many fans who cheer for teams how many observers who just watch teams get to see a four to five win shortstop young in his career playing every day it is so cool i love watching the guy compete and i'm just gonna relish however much time i get to just focus on him as a baseball player competing at the highest level because that's what's really fascinating to me for sure. I mean, he's a very, very talented player. And I think, too, you know, there are people such as myself and hopefully some of our listeners who do enjoy the intricacies of the arbitration stuff. But let's be realistic here. It's not as though anyone becomes a fan of the game of baseball because they're following an arbitration hearing. You know, you become a fan of baseball or you become a fan of a player because of what they can do on the field. And that's the case for all of us. It's the possibility that they bring. It's the talent. It's the moment-to-moment interactions or watching them behind the scenes, watching them at spring training, watching them prepare. All those things are super interesting. 
and uh, far more interesting than whatever PDFs the Blue Jays have discarded uh, that they no longer need to use now that Bichette's been extended. You're going to be in the dumpsters behind Rogers Center just sifting <laughs> through for flash drives. Oh, you know looking, they have shredders. <laughs> looking for shredders. There's no point. Piecing back together shredded documents or whatever and then seeing like, oh, no, that's just like the, you know, the hot dog bill. Like, all right, what's this one? If only it were that simple, but I'm sure it's all shredded and disposed of with the in the midst of that construction site. There's no chance of getting that back. Well, let's step away. Uh, and when we come back, we are going to cover all other things, Blue Jays, and talk about some other things going on with the club. All that and so much more when we continue on at The Letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It continues on at the letters Arden Swelling. Ben Nicholson Smith, our producer, is Christian Ryan. Uh, ben, I've been sitting on this like segment idea that I had for literal months. Uh, That's right. <laughs> at the end of uh, last season, it went right from the wild card series between the Jays and Mariners and the mayhem that, that was uh, onto a plane to the West Coast, covered the National League playoffs, covered the uh, the NLDS uh, between the uh, the Padres and Dodgers, and then covered the CS between the Padres and Phillies, another NL East team. Um, and it was so interesting just to be around other teams, around other players, other staff, see how they do things, what's different, what's the same. We talked about it last week. You get this like myopic, like you get this tunnel vision uh, when you're just around one team all the time, and you forget there's 29 other organizations that are you have their own philosophies and and methods and ways of doing things. So I just wanted to share like some of the insights I gleaned there, some of the stuff that I saw there, and how it relates to the Blue Jays and some of the things it made me think about. Yeah, great. I mean, sounds good. I definitely agree that in the smaller snippets, I've never done like a full kind of stretch of extended time away from the Jays. But in the smaller snippets, it's always so interesting um, just to see how things are done, whether it's a day here or, you know, some of the off-season events where it's a bit more global. It's really fascinating. So, yeah, curious to hear. Certainly had a couple good uh, cities in there with San Diego and L.A. And, you know, some great fan bases, too, and obviously some talented players. So let's hear it. Yeah, Philly, great as well. So let's start here. And this is like a series of things that when I saw them happening with these other very successful clubs made me think back to the kind of conversations and discourse that we have with the Blue Jays throughout weeks and months and throughout seasons. So, like, it starts... With, I was chatting with Chris Martin, the uh, reliever for, uh, he played for the Cubs and the Dodgers last year, and now he's going to play for the Red Sox going forward. Uh, signed, a, I forget what the terms of his deal were, but two like years, signed, 18 and a half, something yeah, like that. Yeah, like signed a nice, nice contract for a guy at his age, for a reliever at his age, and he deserves it because he's a really good pitcher. And I was, chatting with him because he knows Anthony Bass. They played together overseas. They both had a very similar course where they started their careers in the U.S. and they couldn't really figure it out. Things weren't really working at the big league level, went overseas, came back, and then really discovered something late in their careers. And I was kind of like, what was the difference for you, man? Like, what was it? And he said, the Dodgers really helped me a lot with my cutter. 
Like they gave me a lot of feedback on that pitch and, you know, really had some uh, very involved sessions with me on how I was throwing it, how I was using it, like why it's important, like really helped me understand it and how it can be a separator for me. And I said to him, you know, Anthony Bass said the same thing about his slider. <laughs> Anthony Bass was a very different guy when he went away to, you know, overseas and came back and finally stopped being stubborn and like bought in to what some of the analysts and R&D departments in the game had been telling him. And, you know, Chris was telling me like, yeah, like I really had to come around to just giving myself over to that and believing in it and not being stubborn and not being this old school baseball guy who's resistant to it. And is I have to be this type of pitcher. I really embraced a new approach and it's been huge for me. And look, it's, gone off and made him like 18 million dollars it's anthony bass is you know in embracing the the analytical side of things and embracing the data and what some of the uh quote-unquote nerds are telling him has become a top 10 reliever over the last two years so it just made me think about how often there's discussions around the blue jays of they're relying too much on analytics who are all of these dorks from the front office who are coming in with their spreadsheets and their charts? Like, what is it with them messing with these pitchers and putting all this stuff in their heads? Well, that stuff is helping a lot of pitchers across the league. It's helping them extend their careers, helping them make more money, get more out of themselves, and be really effective players. So it's not just the Blue Jays. It's a lot of organizations, such as the Dodgers, the most successful organization of the last decade that are buying into this stuff and that are using it to get better. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think it makes so much sense to dive into the analytical world of things. And no one is saying that analytics should displace the feel and the human element. And if some dude just really doesn't want to throw his slider okay, then he probably shouldn't throw it because he's not going to have conviction in that pitch anyway. So let's just move on from that one. But I, I think that um, the most progressive and ultimately the most successful organizations do have a lot of resources for players. And one of the best resources that you can have is R&D departments. And they hire from places like Driveline, the Blue Jays on their coaching staff, the people with Driveline resumes. you know, And that's not unique for them. Um, certainly, you know, without knowing the specific, you know, members of the Dodgers coaching staff, I'm sure that they have people with those types of backgrounds. Um, and even teams like the Phillies, where maybe, you know, you look at a Dave Dombrowski run team and Rob Thompson, like they're not necessarily the most like forward, you know, looking analytical team, but they still have smart people in those front offices who are very well acquainted with those things. They, you know, before Jason Okart went over to the Red Sox, they had him working in their hitting R&D department. Even the less progressive organizations, anyone this side of the Rockies, like you or maybe Royals, although they've made some strides, like you are going to have people who can support your players in that way. And it extends to hitters as well. I was talking to Jay Cronenworth and uh, Austin Nola with uh, with the Padres just about their pregame hitter meetings. They have those every day. Like every day they're having meetings about that night's starter, about the approach that they want to have as a lineup, just about thinking and having some conviction about how they are attacking the opposition's pitching staff like as a collective. Obviously every player is like 
doing their own thing and trying to get their hits, but there really is like a, a focus each and every night on just the style of plate appearances that they want to have. And that goes into series as well. They have hitters meetings at the beginning of series where they talk about the bullpen arms that they're going to be facing and the types of situations that are going to come up and the coaches are telling them like, here's how we're likely to deploy you if these situations arise or if we're looking at this, like be ready for this stuff. And I just hear it so often. The Blue Jays have too many meetings. These players are overwhelmed with information and with data and they're being bogged down. And why are they doing all this stuff? The Padres are doing that stuff. And I promise you the Dodgers are doing that stuff. I promise you progressive, like really good organizations in this game are planning this way and strategizing this way and talking to Jay Cronenworth about it in particular, but all, I, I mean, Nola had a bit on it. They were talking about how much value they take from it and just how important it is for them as a lineup, as a collective, as a cohesive group to really sort of focus their strategy and their thoughts and their plan for that night. Yeah, it's really interesting. And to me, it, it makes me think of football right away. Like in baseball, you know, and in, in all sports, I think there's this this notion of like the purity of the game and just this idea that these players should just be freelancing it. And that's where the beauty of the sport is. And it's just like, you know, whatever your ideal is, Wayne Gretzky out there, just Mario Lemieux out there, just like dangling the puck and and freelancing. That's amazing. When players do that, that's incredible. Um, obviously watching McDavid do that sort of thing, the creativity, we all love seeing that. At the same time, like with the NFL, there are offensive coordinators, there are defensive coordinators, there are systems in place. This is a sport that generates all kinds of highlights, all kinds of revenue, all kinds of you know incredible physical acts of athleticism and coordination and spontaneity. But within that, there is a plan. And there are offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators that are massive parts of the game that are paid very handsomely, that are coveted, that go on to become head coaches in that league because they need to have a plan. And in baseball, we call them hitting coaches. There's no such thing as an offensive coordinator, although I won't be surprised if that happens at some point soon. But you need to have some sort of plan. If you're facing Jacob deGrom, you're not going to get on base by accident. And this is the kind of caliber of pitching that you see in October. Yeah, remember that next time you hear, well, what is a hitting strategist? Like, what do you mean you have a pitching coach for just for strategy? Like, what does that mean? That's what's going into this. And it extends to coaching as well, to managers. Um, talking to Bob Melvin, he was mentioning having a script for games that the Padres follow on a given night. And this is in the postseason. I don't know that they have like as intricate scripts for uh, regular season games, but I mean, certainly in the DS and CS, like Bob Melvin was talking about how he knows how many innings he wants his starter to go. Like he knows how he wants to get through the first few innings. And then there are various off ramps from that script and various pivot points and ways that it can change just depending on circumstances that arise. But their pitching decisions, the Padres in that series, were mostly scripted out ahead of time. Like they had a really good idea of the matchups that they were looking for, of the situations and spots they wanted to get their pitchers into, of how far they would extend their starters, of when they would lift them. 
How many times have you heard the criticism? The Blue Jays are scripting out these games before they're played. Like they're relying on their plan too much. They aren't deviating from it. They aren't reacting in game. Like you got to manage with feel. You got to do this. You got to have that guy on the bench who's just saying, yep, I I just think that, you know, Kevin Gosman's got to throw 110 pitches here because he's on or whatever it is. Really good teams are doing this stuff. Really good teams are thinking about this the same way the Blue Jays are. It, it goes to the other side of the Phillies as well. Rob Thompson, uh, both these guys, by the way, Bob Melvin and Rob Thompson, pretty old managers. Like Bob Melvin's been managing since like the early 2000s. These are guys who have done it uh, in very old school ways, have been around the game for a very long time and have clearly adapted and learned uh, how to do things differently. Rob Thompson was talking about balancing feedback from Philadelphia's version of a high performance department when he was making deployment decisions and when he was his club was making decisions on when to fly cross continent between games when they were making batting practice decisions and training decisions and how far to push players and whether it would be better to rest and off field work and just what how does kind of structure the training day before a game i mean rob thompson's talking about this stuff and talking about being collaborative with like their version of hp and taking in that advice and that guidance and i i don't need to do this again how often have you heard you know what even is the high performance department what are they doing why are they getting involved in baseball decisions i'm telling you really good baseball clubs really successful baseball clubs are involving high performance are involving all of the people who work in in kind of sports science when they're making decisions so it that's from a coaching and managing perspective, that's something that I came away with. It's just how involved the process is, how collaborative it is in terms of on-field decision-making and then off-field structure as well, and how I've seen some of the similar things with the Blue Jays. And it's so interesting, like even going back to the idea of the script, right? Because people don't like that. Um, <laughs> nope. You know, People don't like the idea that the manager is sitting there or some, worse still, some... You know, some nerd is sitting there thinking that, you know, they can script the game that really gets people going. And of course, you can't script it. That's why we like watching it. It's unpredictable. No one knows what's going to happen, even the players, even the managers. But I think that any team sport, you're probably better off if you go in with a plan. And certainly with football, you you don't think that, you know, for the Super Bowl this weekend, you don't think Andy Reid knows what he wants to do on the opening drive of that game. Of course he does. Like, they've thought that through. They probably know what they would do if they win the coin flip, what they would do if they're getting the ball at the start of the second half. Now, you don't know what you're going to do if it's, you know, third and three, you're down by seven at your own 30-yard line. Like, those decisions are made in real time in the context of the game, and that's where feel is really important. But, yeah, like, I think that it's worth stating that for a lot of sports, there's a plan. If you're an elite marathoner, you would go in with a plan. You're not going to just wing it and sprint (laughs) out of the gate and go max speed. Like, of course, there's a balance to be struck there. And so, you know, this might be different in other sports. I don't know hockey that well. Maybe like in hockey, do they just freewheel it or do they? This is exposing how little I know about um, (laughs) about some sports, but even on a power play, they would have a plan in hockey, right? Like I'm sure they would. Plans exist. It doesn't mean that you're totally beholden to it, but it gives you some sort of structure. And then the best coaches and the best general managers and the best players even are going to make adjustments on the fly. Because if you notice that your slider's not breaking your changeup isn't fading of course that is the time to move away from the plan and to bypass what the numbers are telling you 
Yeah, I don't think Kipchoge is just like, yeah, I'm just going to kind of feel it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. See where my legs are at. Like, he's got a very distinct plan for how he yeah. wants to run that race. It's professional sports, man. Um, the, the, watching the postseason up close also really just drove home a point that I think we all understand. But starting pitching and home runs win in this league. That's just that's just how you win. Like that's the formula. You get like, yeah, defense is important. Like a good bullpen helps. Like you can steal wins here and there with like plucky, you know, contact rallies and dings and doinks and you know, a bit of luck or whatever, but you really can't rely on that. And in the postseason, a lot of that stuff goes away just because like the the competition, the level just raises and the amount of focus and preparation and intensity goes up. If you want to give yourself the best possible odds of winning on any given day, hit homers and dominate a lineup the first two trips through. That is the most important thing. Well, especially when you think about how grueling the month of October can be because you can bullpen your way through maybe a series or two. Um, it gets really tough to bullpen your way through an entire October, um, especially for teams that have had to push to, to make it in the first place. Those guys are often running on fumes. It is a lot to ask. And I think a, a great bullpen is also necessary. But, you know, the starting pitching, even in this age of openers, even in this age of eight or nine reliever bullpens, you really do need starting pitching. And I think, you know, to tie it to the Jays, they're pretty well positioned on that front. They have a really good rotation on paper. Um, but again, going to that point of having to adjust as the season progresses there. And when it comes to the bullpen, uh, this was another thing that I really came away with. I think there are two bullpens in an MLB season. There is one that gets you to the playoffs, and then there's one that carries you through the playoffs. Your regular season bullpen has to be deep. It has to be flexible. You have to have not only lots of options, you have to have lots of optionable relievers relievers who can go up and down between triple a and mlb we've seen how important how valuable those guys are to teams now in an era of uh three batter minimums and, and pitcher limits and uh starters not pitching as deep into games uh you want a lot of different looks you want like a good mix of guys who can provide length and then you know guys who can be sort of shorter uh burst options like you know you want like a bunch of really good options like at the back end of your bullpen because at any given time two of them are liable to be hurt or underperforming or whatever but in the postseason like you really just concentrate it down to two or three guys you're gonna condense and just like funnel all your opportunities through those guys like for the Padres they had two relievers they trusted in the postseason Robert Suarez and Josh Hader for the Phillies it was Jose Alvarado and Sir Anthony Dominguez Outside of them, they didn't want to go to any of their other options, and they were funneling all opportunities through them. And like maybe the Phillies had David Robertson, like if in a pinch, if they really needed him in the seventh inning, but he wasn't their preferred option. And for the Padres, like they were using Nick Martinez and like that interesting sort of one trip through role. Same thing with Zach Eflin with with the Phillies. Um, but yeah, I really do think that you know, yes depth and options and having all kinds of of abilities is important to get you through the regular season but once you get to the playoffs man i think that you really are just looking for like your two guys who are going to blow the ball past bats the ball's not going to be in play they're going to get a lot of swing and miss and rack up a lot of strikeouts hopefully not walk too many guys and then if you just have like that one trip through 
guy, that Nick Martinez guy who can take the third trip after your starter gives you two, that's really all you're going to need on most nights. And uh, that's really what your bullpen's going to look like. That's what's going to help you win in October. Yeah, the, it's like the funnel gets narrower and narrower, right? Like if the Jays are losing 6-1 to one in St. Louis on opening day, throw anyone out there, right? Like <laughs> put the yeah. bullpen coach on the mound. It doesn't, you know, it's fine. And then as you get closer and closer to the point that, you know, a championship could be won or lost in those moments, then you're going to be way more selective about who's out there on the mound. And so that means there's a high incentive to have your best relievers be really, really good. And Jordan Romano is one of those for the Jays. You know, we'll see who kind of ascends to that other level but you know even this reminds me of the chad green signing and like he's part of that push bullpen like he's not part of the hey let's you know it's a long season and and we need to cover some innings bullpen he's more part of the all right like this is really going to be you know potential season on the line moments whether it's determining you know do we get a first round buy or not do we have home field advantage or not do we advance to the next round or not those relievers you know, the the three or four and then the one or two, they're incredibly important. And the one trip through guy is something that I think is going to continue to take on more importance as we go forward. Like what Martinez was doing for the Padres, what Zach Eflin was for the Phillies. It's very Tampa Bay Rays-ish, I suppose. But it's something that I think more and more teams are going to try to develop. I've seen the Blue Jays do it a bit with Hayden Younger, uh, TJ Brock, another guy internally that they're sort of developing into that one trip through bullpen role. I think you're going to see that type of reliever becoming much more of a weapon in the game going forward i wonder if you know best case like i mean like 95th percentile you know outcome for the jays this year if nate pearson is that guy for them that would be another guy who could be who could absolutely do that for them so yeah if the blue jays are in the postseason this year and they're being successful like their bullpen might be like jordan mono and eric swanson for the eighth ninth high leverage get swing and miss and then nate pearson gets us you know faces nine hitters after the starter and that's our ideal game plan and yeah. because, like, uh, say, I don't know, Anthony Bass is hurt and Jimmy Garcia is ineffective and Adam Simber and Tim Mays just have the ball and play too often. Yeah. I mean, there, there are scenarios where that happens. And, uh, you know, for the Jays, I'm sure they're hoping that, uh, you know, they have an abundance of choices. But we all know the season is uh, it, it really does cut down on, on some of those options in the course of six plus months. No easy way to pivot to this, so I'll just say it. Manny Machado is legit. Manny Machado <laughs> yeah. is a Hall of Famer in my book. Yeah. And watching him play up close and talking to people around the Padres about the impact that he has had, it was so crazy to me just having seen him come up with the Orioles and having been there covering the Blue Jays. They're playing the Orioles 18 times a year. When Machado was like this petulant malcontent, when he you know, when he was the Johnny Hustle guy, right? The, the way people talked about him was so different at that time when he was coming around with the Orioles. And now I'm hearing Padres teammates like referring to him as a leader and a real source of energy in the clubhouse, someone who really like brings the bench together uh you know he is beloved by that fan base in san diego i mean he moves trucks of merchandise uh at petco and i mean he was so massive for the padres and filling in like the fernando tatis jr sized hole and void atop their lineup um it is just is just a reminder that like you can rewrite your your career history like you can rewrite your story in this game what you are at the beginning of your career is not what you're going to be when 
when you finish it. Like, remember May Machado's free agency? Like, and remember how there yeah. was, you know, a lot of teams that like, yeah, we're, we're not in on Machado. Like, you know, there's all these questions about his character and who he is as a, as a teammate. Like, remember he had that really odd lack of suitors as a free agent? Do you think San Diego regrets for a second, even a penny? That they paid him the $300 million contract. Do you think there is any regret there? Not at all. Like, this guy is phenomenal. Machado lifts the ball to left center field. Way back there. Goodbye. Home run, Manny Machado. 8-4 San Diego. So it just goes to show that, like, talent wins out in the long haul you can rewrite your your early career story i'm thinking about someone like vladimir guerrero jr and the conversations very early in his big league career with regards to conditioning and and commitment and what he was doing with his habits and routines in the offseason i'm thinking about the way we're talking about bo bichette right now very early in his career like it's just a good reminder that the storylines change um they aren't always sticky uh so don't think that vlad and bo you know the way we talk about them today and the players that they are today are going to be that forever like they're going to change and grow and evolve over time they're going to take on different roles in this game and there's possibly a point eight years from now where we're talking you know where, where they have a similar sort of manny machado arc maybe with different teams but where uh where we're talking about them very differently than we talk about them today yeah it's entirely possible those guys are still so young vlad and Bo. Um, Machado is too. I mean, he, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, he can opt out of his current deal after this coming season, hit free agency. Uh, so he and Matt Chapman, a couple of very intriguing free agents coming up at third base. But, you know, this does remind me of the Harper Machado free agent period and how, you know, just as an industry, that was such a demoralizing way to do free agency where, you know, this time, whatever that was, three, four years ago, they were still out there on the free agent market. And it's just, it's too long. Like, I, I really think that for whatever reason, the MLB offseason this year was fantastic. The pacing of it was ideal. It is so nice that, and yeah, okay, Michael Walker's out there, and maybe, you know, Jerks and Profar, that's fine. But essentially, all of the major free agents signed, so much more compelling. It allows us to really look ahead. It allows us to anticipate with a pretty high degree of certainty what the Toronto Blue Jays are going to look like or the Yankees or you know the Phillies, whatever team. And it just is so much more satisfying as a, as a fan of the game to consume an offseason in that way. And just all the BS around, like the, for both players, Harper and Machado, about their character, about you know what they bring to a club, about being me first, like just all this crap. Neither of those teams have any regrets with the no. with the deals that they signed with those two superstars. Two guys, honestly, I'll throw Harper in as well, who should be who are going to the Hall of Fame, like two oh, yeah. Hall of Fame players that we're watching, uh, and and it's just it's really cool. It was really cool to get to see them up close i should have harper on my list because i mean he was just bringing an intensity and a level of competition to the ballpark every day that was like unbelievable everybody saw the moments that he had for the phillies i interviewed him in, in a walk-off after one of the games and just looking in his eyes i was just like oh <laughs> oh you're on another level right now man <laughs> you wow. like you've tapped into something that is fascinating about high level <laughs> athletes last one Petco Park, amazing. Incredible atmosphere. 
great ballpark made me think about some of the things the blue jays are trying to do with the renovations at rogers center uh you walk around that place and it is like everywhere you turn there's a different nook and cranny that is like a different bar a different viewing area like a different congregation space different vantage point to watch the game different place where people are going during a game like it's just it's just so interesting it just almost feels like this like endless maze of really interesting and unique areas at a ballpark it's a really it was however they designed it whoever was involved in it did a really really nice job because it's all very walkable and it's just all very interesting you don't feel like you're just when you're there um you're not just confined to like a seat this is my seat and this is where i'm going to sit and this is where i'm going to watch the game and i'm going to be here for three hours you get up and you walk around and there's just like all this interesting stuff to do and go see and all these little and everything's kind of different and unique and everything you know really ties back to the area in san diego which obviously is beautiful great road city and even like their game ops is really really good man like they do a, a good job of of getting fans involved before first pitch in between innings they're re- the, the game Game apps ops was like reacting really quickly to stuff that was happening in game, reacting really quickly to like storylines around the series, like the whole rally goose thing. If you remember that, like they had that goose that landed in uh, the outfield, mm-hmm. and then the blue or the the Padres started a rally. Literally, like the next night, they had in game rally goose presentations, uh, and they are like going around with ornamental geese and like just buying into that. It's not so structured it's not so well this is how we run our game ops every night and it's exactly the same and at the sixth inning it's always everybody clap your hands like we it's they change it and they react and they're like dynamic and live they have just a really good sense of what the crowd is looking for and keeping it fresh and unique and spicy just a a phenomenal ballpark with a really good game ops staff that was just uh, a treat to get to watch postseason baseball there that's awesome yeah it's um you know, it's such a well-located ballpark. Um, the downtown there, you know, I can imagine in a playoff atmosphere would just, you know, be really lively because even without, even at times that there's not baseball in San Diego, it's a pretty lively area, that gas lamp district. So I, I bet the ballpark was definitely ready to anticipate, you know, what was pretty successful, not not the outcome they wanted, but, you know, between Soto, Machado, so much talent, such a fun team. So that would have been really cool. Oh, and five o'clock starts on the West Coast. Five p.m. local start. That's a godsend. Love that. That sounds great. Five p.m. starts, I'd be totally fine with. It's late enough in the day that it still feels like a game's happening at an appropriate time, but it's early enough that you get out of there at a reasonable hour. So where's San Diego for you as far as road cities? It might be number one, man. Um, yeah. It's up there. It's up there. How about you? Um, I've never covered a game there, but I like going to San Diego. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's, you know, obviously not one of the common stops on the Blue Jays road circuit for obvious reasons, although that's changing a little bit now that the schedule's a bit more balanced, but yeah, for me, I think the favorite, I, you know, it's sort of connected to like what kind of cities you like. I like the, um, I like cities like Toronto, like uh, Chicago comes to mind, New York, Boston, New York. I always, you know. It's such a cool spot. We were there last year for the pod and it's like, I always feel like a tourist there, like, you know, eyes wide open. It just feels like such a different scale of place. And, you know, there is a lot of baseball there. I like the baseball energy in New York. Um, Obviously, a lot of baseball history and two really good teams right now. So, 
those cities come to mind. Um, sometimes it's also to do with the ballpark too, where, you know, I like downtown ballparks. I like being able to, you know, see the bars um, filled with people, see people walking to the ballpark, be able to get there really easily myself. So a place like Detroit, especially when the Tigers are good, I do have a soft spot for Comerica. Um, I think that, you know, especially, you know, with all the Jays fans across the border, you really get a good vibe there. Um, San Francisco's cool because it's downtown and that's awesome. But, you know, downtown San Francisco, there's a lot of issues there that, um, you know, I hopefully get resolved. But there are aspects of that where, you know, it's incredible ballpark, though. So San Francisco, I think, would be on the list for me. But yeah, like Yankee Stadium, Fenway, Wrigley, those are incredible parks. Those are great road cities, great environments to be around. So I'm thinking just cities, like taking the ballparks out of it. I think number one, Seattle. Love see like just a great city, super walkable, lots of interesting things to do. Um, number two, Boston. And I mean, like San Diego would probably be number two if I went there with any kind of regularity, but I just don't because the Blue Jays don't play there very often. So uh, I do go to Boston with some regularity to cover the Jays, and I love that city. It's walkable. There's like lots of, you know, there's water. There's lots of interesting things to do. Uh, you know, don't love working at Fenway Park from a journalist perspective. I, yeah, from a fan's perspective, I think it's great. Uh, as a journalist, it's kind of like working in 1902, but uh boston as a city would probably be number two and then yeah i guess san diego could could round that out although like philly another place we don't get to go to very often but like underrated nice yeah. nice city like philly i was there in september um and and liked it we should uh we should have had shy on to get uh his uh guest yeah. uh thoughts on on fenway park because i know he's got some hot takes um not sure if he wants to air them on the podcast but um but i i think uh yeah, there's so much history there. It sort of feels like 1902, but you know they have Wi-Fi. It's fine. You know, I, I, you know, like it's yeah, like you're walking. The thing with Fenway is like at the end of the game when we're trying to get interviews and get down to the clubhouse, you're walking against the tide of fans, and so you know you're you're kind of getting pushed by uh, well-meaning Red Sox fans as they're leaving the ballpark after a few beverages. That's not ideal, but I the the view is pretty good. Like you're kind of high up there in that press box. Um, and I just think it's such a cool park. It's just such a such a baseball park. So I, I really like Fenway. The worst part of that post-game scramble where, yeah, you're literally like the salmon going upstream because everybody is funneling out of the ballpark right through the very like narrow keyhole where you have to walk in to get to the visitors clubhouse and like you're on a time crunch there right like you're racing to get there because like schneider's going to come out and talk and they're going to open the clubhouse and if it's a getaway day especially like you're trying to do things expediently and just like get guys going like no player wants to be sitting around waiting for media so you try to get there very quickly it takes a bunch of time just to get down from the press box to that main level because of the old rickety elevators that they have there and then you're swimming upstream against people and then inevitably there is a very well-meaning blue jays fan or a few that is like hey ben hey arden what's going on and you feel like such an a-hole because you have to be like hey and just 
friggin' rocket right by them. Like you have to almost blow yeah. them off. And I feel so terrible because I want to stop and be like, hey, thank you. Like, appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the game. How's it going? Where are you from? Saskatoon. That's cool. But like you I you don't have that opportunity because you're trying to move very quickly and you're trying to like dodge people and walk around folks, not get beers spilled on you and get to the clubhouse very quickly. So I always feel so, so badly that I have to just like zip past folks who just want to say hi. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, because in most places you have like a dedicated media elevator, you're able to get down there, you know, in a reasonable amount of time. And, you know, at Fenway too, like, you know, as you're leaving there, it's one of those spots where because it's so tiny and just was designed, I mean, the people who designed that, like, they were probably born in like 1841 or something like literally like <laughs> yeah. that's you know yep. it was a different world um so there is no it's not like there's like a player's you know family lounge so you're like walking right alongside all the special guests of the players which is fine but you know i i don't want to be in their space and it's just you're you're interviewing you know john schneider right there and then like jordan romano and adam simber are doing their like post-game workouts you know like basically like tossing medicine balls back and forth and doing crunches because they didn't pitch and they got to get their workout in before the team bus leaves and it's like you're four feet away from them in that fenway space whereas you know in and that's that is fine that's neutral to me i don't really care you just stay out of their way but you know in some in most ballparks they're in a totally different room you don't even see that and that's probably the way it should be yeah so there's your behind the scenes content your off topic uh content from atl this week not always going to leave it for right till the end that's the way it worked out this week please do hit us up at the letters of sportsnet.ca any kind of behind the scenes off topic stuff you want to hear us talk about uh let us know and uh we'll get to it because lots of episodes of atl to come less than a week until spring training begins ben very exciting uh we'll be back next week and every week after that for the uh, 2023 blue jays season very exciting things to come for ben i'm arden christian ryan is our producer thank you for listening talk to you next time on at the letters